and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're looking at the genetics of failure, why we fail to lose weight thanks to our genes, and why ignoring genetic information and DNA diversity leads to billions of dollars being wasted on drugs that don't work. It's the middle of February, which means that for many people, New Year's resolutions are probably starting to slide. But if you're struggling to stick to salad, the explanation might lie, at least partly, in your genes, according to recent research showing that people who managed to stay skinny seem to have particular genetic variations compared to those of us who are on the plumper side, or, as I like to think of myself, built for comfort and not for speed. To find out more about the curious connections between our genes and our waistlines, Greer Jackson went to chat with Dr Giles Yeo from the University of Cambridge, who was at the Royal Institution in London last month to launch his new book, Gene Eating, The Science of Obesity and the Truth About Diets. He started by explaining why weight loss is just physics, but the process of losing, gaining or maintaining weight is all about our biology. So if you have an input-output imbalance of seven calories per day, which is not a lot, it's two and a half Tic Tacs or half a squeeze of ketchup, right? You are, from the maths, going to gain, you know, close to 15 kilograms over 30 years. Okay, now it's slightly simplistic, but the actual physics is going to be right. And it's about the physics, right? So the physics is simple. How you gain weight and how you lose weight is simple, meaning that you have to eat more than you burn to gain weight and to burn more than you eat, therefore to lose weight. That's the explanation for and the solution to the obesity epidemic. The problem is how, which is physics, is not the right question to ask, I'm going to argue. The question is why. Okay, so why do people eat more in this food environment? Why do people behave differently around food? And that is where uh, there is powerful genetic biological underpinnings. And you might think that it's semantics. Oh, it's how, it's what. You, you, you know, you're playing with words. It's got nothing to do with nothing. Well, no, that's not true. Because if the fulcrum of the problem okay, is around physics, how, then a one-size-fits-all solution of eat less, move more advice should work. But it doesn't. And it doesn't because we all behave differently around food. And so a solution to get us to eat less is going to have to be personalized and individual. Can you tell me a bit about the, is it the Pima or the Pima Indians mm-hmm, in Arizona? Because mm-hmm. I think that really underpins the question of why some people tend to act differently around food, at least from a genetics perspective. So there are um, certain groups of people, ethnicity, so to speak, who are more likely to become obese than others. The Pima Indians are one, and the Pima Indians are not South Asian Indians. They are indigenous peoples of, of America, so Native Americans. And these, uh, the Pimas uh, were from around the Arizona area, or now near the Gila River. But at some point, um, some of the Pimas around the Arizona area moved to the mountains of central Mexico. And I don't know what the reasons are. But in effect, you have two groups of Pima Indians who are genetically identical or as identical as two ethnic groups would be. Okay? Now, this move happened ages ago. But what has happened is, obviously, ages ago, our environment was roughly the same. But then what has happened now is that the Arizona Pimas have been exposed to the American diet, are now 50% of them have type 2 diabetes. 
percent of them, okay, against a world average of 15%. And we're in an epidemic. Whereas in the Pimas that actually live in a more agricultural society in the mountains of central Mexico, you know, they hardly have any type 2 diabetes at all. And so people have been studying them for a long time. And the bottom line is this, right? This has actually brought about what we call the thrifty gene hypothesis. It's slightly simplistic because it's not one gene, but there we go. It's a thrifty phenotype hypothesis, whereby because the Pimas in Arizona lived in a very harsh environment, they had adapted to be more efficient around their food, to eat more when there was food, and to store more. So for every given calorie, to store more than they burn while doing the same amount of work, right? And when the Pimas moved to Mexico, that was fine. But then when the environment changed in uh, the now what is Tex-Mex area, suddenly you have this extreme response. You get this extreme response because they, they didn't want to move away from the Gila uh, River because there's some spiritual connection there. But because they couldn't move from it and they were tied to the area, they had to respond or they were going to die. Whereas if you go look at the Pimas in Mexico, they were skinny. Here's the bottom line, right? Genetically, they're identical. The difference is within their environment. Now, this sounds very exotic, you know, and it's very severe, and you might think, well, this has nothing to do with nothing. But this is actually a just a more extreme description of what is actually happening to the world around us, where all of us in the past never had enough food. And so we evolved in a time where when there was food, we ate, um, because we were never guaranteed when the next meal was going to be there. And now in a time of plenty, our genetics means that we are trying to uh, prepare ourselves for a famine that's never going to arrive. So these genes, which may have been advantageous during the feast-famine cycles, have now become toxic in a feast-feast environment. So how hereditary is weight? You talk about it in your book being a bit like height. And from everything you've just described here, it sounds like the environment is a really big important factor in this obesity crisis. But you study genes. So where do the genes come in in this picture? So um, the number that you're looking for is what we call heritability. And heritability is an interesting number because it doesn't mean the percentage of something that comes from genes, but the percentage of the variation of, of a given trait, which has to do with genes. And this number tends to be calculated using twin studies. You have identical twins and you have non-identical twins. And identical twins share 100% of their genes and then non-identical twins share as much as you would with your brother or sister, so 50% of your genes. You can take any given trait and ask how much, if you share 100% of DNA versus 50% of DNA, what is the variation, how much of it is alike, and you can calculate the heritability from there. I'll give you just two examples first. Um, hair color it's going to be very powerfully genetically influenced with very little environmental input, and bleach doesn't count, right, for that. Whereas freckles are also very powerfully genetically influenced, but whether or not they appear, even amongst identical twins, depends on whether or not you like to wear t-shirts, do you like to stand in the sun. So a genetic trait with powerful environmental influence. And weight sits somewhere in between. Around 70% heritability is our body shape and body size. As much as 70%? As much as 70%, I mean, but it's not 100%. And that's amongst identical twins, so clearly that number can shift. And also your socioeconomic class, your environment will also shift that. The range is actually anywhere between 40 and 70%, depending on your socioeconomic class, your lifestyle. So the environment can shift it, you see? I mean, there is a genetic role to be played, but the environment can influence the percentage in which your genetics actually play. So we shouldn't lose hope. I don't think we should lose hope. I mean, I've got two analogies which I use. The first one is the hand of poker analogy. So if we imagine your genes to be a hand of poker, and you can have good hands and you can have bad hands, and you can't do anything about that. You can blame your folks. That's about the only thing you can do. But 
you can win with a bad hand of poker, even though it's more difficult. So in other words, it's not impossible. Another analogy which I will use is I'm Chinese by ethnicity, and I will never, ever run as fast as Usain Bolt. Okay, and that's down to my genes. That's what I tell my wife anyway. But it doesn't mean that if I train, I won't be able to run faster than I do now. So what your genes do is, yes, of course your genes bracket some possibilities. You know, why am I bald, my genes? Why do I look like who I am? How fast can I run? There's going to be genetic limits set on that. It's a bad thing to say, but look, it's true. But it doesn't give you a point in time. What your genetics does is to give you a range, you know, and we're trying to move ourselves within that range and body weight and our response to this environment is going to be one of that. So there's something we can do about it. It's just more difficult for some people than for others. If it is 70% heritable obesity or how likely you are to gain weight or not, does that mean we can predict it by looking at, say, your genes or even your parents' genes? So that's an interesting question, you know, because you can now get these genetic tests, right, by 23andMe, by DNA Fit. You can go to any drugstore or chemist and actually buy these, right? It costs anywhere between 100 and 250 quid. And they claim to be able to predict any number of things, you know, how fast you can run, your aerobic capacity, and your likelihood of becoming obese, based on the fact that there is a genetic influence to body weight, which I do agree with. The problem is, this is still not possible, given what we know. And the reason behind that is because... These companies are not lying. I just want to point this out. In other words, it's based on good science that has been published and it's based on these genetic risk scores on a population level which shows that you know you can have an increased risk of becoming obese or not. The problem is they're fundamentally misunderstanding the difference between population level risk and individual prediction. So I'm going to give you an example. So if we take something like um, reproduction okay, in human beings. So I think we all know that the younger you are as a female, the more likely you are to get pregnant if you're trying to. And then there's a curve. You can actually draw it. Billions of women have become pregnant and had babies. And the older you get, the lower the likelihood till you get to the menopause and the likelihood is zero. And it's a very, very, very robust curve. We understand the biology behind it. But yet, we cannot take a random 34-year-old woman off the street and predict if she's going to become pregnant just based on this curve. Why? Because it could be 100% because she's ovulating that day. It could be zero because she could be infertile for a myriad of different reasons. And the reason is because you need more biological information in order to make a prediction even against the background of population-level risk. And this is the same for your genetics. Your genetics, because they give you a range and because it doesn't determine who you are, it influences who you are. Okay, it doesn't determine who you are. You need more information. And so the companies are only taking the genotype, you know, your actual genetic information from a few spots in a genome and trying to make predictions they cannot make. So at the moment, we are still unable to predict. There may come a time where we will, but not today. That's Giles Yeo speaking with Greer Jackson at the Royal Institution. Giles's new book, Gene Eating, is out now. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzip.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show and tell all your friends. Also last month, our intrepid reporter Martha Henriquez headed off to the Festival of Genomics in London, organised by genetics news service Frontline Genomics, to find out what's going on in the world of genes, genomes and DNA. 
while there was a lot of excitement about using genetic information to inform and personalise healthcare, there are still several issues that need to be addressed along the way. Around 90% of all drugs in development fail at some point along their journey from the lab to the patient, usually because they don't work, representing a huge waste of time, money and lives. So, first of all, as Martha found out when she spoke to immunologist Paul Peter Tack, venture partner at Flagship Pioneering in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there's a lot more that could be done when it comes to using genetic data to develop more effective drugs. So first, I think it is critical to become much better at identifying the best therapeutic targets. People have often been misled and tried to invest quite a lot to make molecules against the wrong targets. And it has become very clear that while you need preclinical models also to test for safety and toxicology and mechanistic understanding, it is very important not only to base your research on animal models, but to learn as much as possible about human biology. And I think this is where genetics and genomics can be very helpful. But it does not solve the whole problem. It's very important to do more than that. So how far can better understanding of the human genome help to reduce rates of attrition? Of course, time will tell with better techniques and better approaches it may increase. But there has been a paper showing that you can double the probability of success of a medicine in early discovery if you have genetic validation. But then when you look at it, the probability of success goes up from 3% to 6%. Of course, that's amazing when you have twice as much success, but it still means that there is 94% uncertainty. So I think it clearly illustrates that you need a much more holistic approach to reduce failure, in particular in late-stage development, where the big money kicks in and where it becomes very expensive to do large regulated clinical trials. But there's another issue. And that's the tricksy fact that genes are merely recipes for making the hundreds of thousands of different molecules that make up the cells of our bodies, known as proteins. But just as there's a lot of room for error, alterations and improvisation between a neatly typed recipe in a book and the resulting cake coming out of your oven, there is still a pretty big black box between your genes, or your genotype, and the actual molecular makeup and behaviour of cells, tissues and organs. That's your phenotype. Each gene can make many different proteins, and different types of cells will need different assortments of proteins to function properly. So to really understand what's going on in the body, we need to know exactly which proteins the cells are making, as well as the instructions in the DNA. And it's these protein molecules that most drugs are designed to target, rather than genes themselves. But mapping all the proteins in human cells is a much harder task than you might imagine. Certainly far harder than just getting hold of a genome sequence, as Martha discovered when she spoke to Cecilia Lindskog from Uppsala University in Sweden. She's the director of the Tissue Atlas, part of the Human Protein Atlas, a massive project aiming to answer exactly this question by creating antibodies that specifically recognise all the various proteins produced by human cells and then looking to see where they are. So we select a region of each protein that is specific and unique so we know that this antibody is only targeting this protein that we generate and when we use the antibodies with a method called immunostochemistry that generates a staining reaction. 
So you can visualize where the antibody is bound to the protein because then we will get a brown color and we can look at the microscopy images manually and study the proteins in the cells by looking at them. And so with your human samples that you're using, are these mainly from healthy patients or disease patients or a mixture? We have samples from more than 40 different normal organs throughout the entire body and also 20 different types of cancers. We're covering most of the normal organs and the most common cancer types. With the information that you're generating with the Atlas, who do you think that's going to be useful for and what potential treatments or clinical developments do you foresee coming from this? We hope that the data provides the basis for further research in different organs as we provide information how the proteins should be expressed under normal conditions and then that can be compared in different studies in different diseases. But we also believe that the information should be very relevant for pharma companies, for example, when developing new drugs, knowing where the proteins that the drugs will be targeting are located throughout the human body, because then you could potentially learn more about future side effects of the drug and so on. And so presumably this is quite a large and long timescale project as humans have more than 20,000 genes and so looking at all of those gene products must be taking you some time I imagine. Yes we've been doing this project since 2003 so we are generating antibodies towards each of these proteins and look through hundreds of images for each protein so it's been taking us more than 15 years but now we have a coverage of more than 80 percent of all the human proteins that we have mapped with antibodies. You say you're about sort of 80% coverage at the moment. Is it getting harder as you go through to the last proteins? Are there any that are particularly difficult to work with? Yes, it is. So we have actually been at 80% the last four or five years, and it's difficult to increase to 100% because some of these proteins may only be expressed under certain conditions. Uh, certain functional circumstances or they are expressed in very specific tissues that we didn't look into previously or maybe only during fetal development and not in adult humans. So this is also a level where you could go more into details to try to cover these last percentages or they are proteins that are very difficult to map with antibodies because they might be secreted and are not found in the tissue or so on. There are presumably a finite number of um, human proteins. Do you see that this project will ever sort of come to an end? Will you ever conclusively say, yes, we have finished the human protein atlas? It depends on which level we want to do it because you can always continue and, and dig deeper into more details. We can start to add more specific tissue types that we didn't look into previously. They are not the most common tissue types, like more specific regions of brain, ear, eye, and so on. So I definitely believe that the product could go on for decades if we want to go more into detail. So we hope that this product can provide the basis for further research around proteins. So this is the first draft, but definitely more can be done at different levels. Do you have an idea of when you may approach that eventual 100% mark? We're aiming for increasing the coverage, so we hope to have 90% within the next three or four years. But it's hard to put a number on when you'll, when you'll be finished. Yes, it is. 
that's Cecilia Linscog, who appears to have embarked on the molecular biology equivalent of painting the fourth bridge. So in order to make more effective treatments and tests, not only do we need to use genetic data to inform drug development, we also need to know more about how genetic makeup actually relates to the proteins present in a cell. And then there's another angle, genetic diversity. The vast majority of all the data in current genomic databases that are used to inform the development of new tests and treatments comes from people with white European ancestry, which doesn't accurately reflect the genetic makeup of the global population. This means that billions of people around the world stand to miss out on future medical advances that might not work for them or could even be harmful. To find out more about the implications of the lack of genomic data diversity, Martha spoke to Paul Matthews, Head of Strategic Partnerships at Global Gene Corps, a company that I'm proud to be working with, who are gathering and analysing genetic data from all around the world, particularly India and Africa. This is a very big issue uh, at the moment. Um, there's a publication and a review of GWAS studies only two weeks ago which highlights what we found within our company over the years that is a big skew towards uh, European ancestry Caucasian data and it has been right from the very start when the first genome project was uh, was completed and subsequently um, the, the reason being for the bias that the funders and actually where the research is being done has been in the US and the UK uh, and in Europe. So there's been very little real data coming from other ethnicities and parts of the world. So 81% of all the data was Caucasian. If we look at, say, India, where we're in operation, it has 1.3 billion people, 20% of the global population, yet represents less than 1% of the global data. So even within typically Caucasian countries such as the US and the UK, we're actually a very diverse country. Is there also an issue with access to genetic sequencing that is sort of implicit in people's ethnic backgrounds as well? Well, I'm not so sure on that front. I think one of the issues has been actually who is being sequenced and why. So we know that this year, or at the end of last year in October, the NHS have said that they will sequence particular groups of patients in their genomic medicine service. Um, I think also listening to one of the speakers here uh, yesterday uh, was suggesting that traditionally some of the uh, minority ethnicities have viewed with suspicion uh, sequencing and that may be due to a lack of materials translated uh, into a language which they're familiar with. So there's it's no one easy answer uh, to why that's happening but given that the vast majority of data is uh, white Caucasian ethnicities it's just reflective of the demographic in those uh, different countries. Um, to not just linked to healthcare but also to research and the funding so if, if funders are funding in a particular country they're focusing in on the demographic of that country and to actually fund work outside say in India or Asia or Africa it's very difficult. So what would a perfectly diverse genetic database look like in what ways would it have to be diverse? Again, a very good question. We know there's a, uh, there's a real skew uh, 
Caucasian. If we look at the Asian data, a lot of Chinese data is kind of in a, in a situation where it can't be used by the community and it's kind of locked away. Uh, we are trying to expand the available Indian data. Uh, there's very little uh, in Africa, but there are some good initiatives that are trying to redress that. And again, funding is an issue there. There's very little South American uh, data in the databases. And I think the Middle East is beginning to do, there are various sequencing programs going on. But again, uh, it's early days. And so what problems arise as a result of a lack of diversity in genetic databases? Well, we have this idea of the human genome. We have a reference genome. But the reference genome is very much biased towards a European ancestry reference. Uh, So, for example, if we look at, say, uh, different allelic architecture studies, um, certainly from the work and the research that we've done with our data in India, we see uh, very different genetic makeups to uh, other populations. And uh, coming back to the idea of what would make a truly diverse data set, if we look into India, there are four and a half to 5,000 different ethnic groups, subpopulations across uh, India itself. So it would be very difficult to say we can produce a reference Indian genome or a reference African genome or a reference South American genome. So it's a very broad area. And without data coming from many parts, it would be difficult to, to say that we've, we've, we've solved the problem. And so another issue um, that's been raised is around uh, the use of pharmacogenetics in uh, the NHS after its long-term strategy has recently been announced. So what issues would arise there if there was a lack of diversity in the databases being used? Well, again, um, pharmacogenomics is looking at how specific variants interact with drugs um, and drug-gene interactions. And so if we don't have a true representation of different ethnicities and how particular variants operate within those groups, it would be very difficult to generalise to say that we have a, a pharmacogenomics panel or a pharmacogenomics set that's appropriate to everyone, because it won't be appropriate to everyone. It'll be appropriate to those people whose genomics have been used in the first place. For example, if we look at some of the studies uh, in India, if we separate out two states, um, we've looked at data for a commonly prescribed immunosuppressant drug. And if we look at one state, there's a, a, a pharmacogenomic variant which will determine the response to that, that drug being prescribed. And in one state, 60% of the population have one particular allelic uh, variant. Uh, and uh, on the other side of the continent, uh, there's a state where they have an 11% frequency of that allele. So prescribing that drug within the two different states in the same country uh, gives a very different picture. So how optimistic are you? At the moment do you think we're moving in the right direction or do you think things are going to get worse before they get better? I think we are definitely moving in the right direction. The recognition that diversity needs to be uh, enhanced uh, is is a good one. I think there could be further dialogue between companies like ourselves and, say, funders or health services uh, to look at what data is available, what data is needed. And I think there are collaborations that can be done proactively from both sides. Global Gene Corps' Paul Matthews, speaking with Martha Henriquez, rounding off our report from the Festival of Genomics. And thanks very much to the team at Frontline Genomics for the invitation to the festival. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com.
And finally, think of Charles Darwin and you'll probably recall his famous voyage on the Beagle, possibly the greatest gap year in scientific history, where he made his observations of exotic animals in distant lands that helped to shape his groundbreaking theory of evolution by natural selection. But Darwin's ideas actually owe less to the glamorous Galapagos finches and much more to his studies of the domestic chickens in his own backyard, which were also subject to selection, albeit by human hands rather than natural forces. In the latest podcast from Heredity, the Genetic Society Journal, James Bergen chats to Dr Amir Falar-Sharudi about his recent work investigating the genetic basis of domestication in the chicken, which has helped to turn jumpy wild jungle fowl into today's farmyard chooks. In this study, you zoomed in on gene expression in the pituitary gland. Why is it that the pituitary gland is Mm -hmm. interesting in terms of domestication? Pituitary glands like uh, live between brain and a lot of different glands in the body. So it gets the signals from the hypothalamus and also it's going to give the signal or directly is going to affect the other organs in the body. The surprising thing in this study was... uh, like almost everything was within our dream or within our expectation. I was not expecting to find this many key genes differently expressed in the pituitary gland. You can get the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip or email us at podcast at geneticsunzip.com with any questions and feedback. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And it would be great if you could rate and review and more importantly, spread the word. Tell your friends, send out a tweet and share the love. In the next episode, we'll be exploring more of our 100 ideas in genetics by casting an eye over the careers of some of the world's top models. Model organisms, that is. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Katani, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo was designed by James Mayle. Thanks to our reporters, Greer Jackson and Martha Henriquez. And thanks to Hannah Varrell for production. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.